Yo, what's happening, CNFers? Pardon my voice. I'm getting over a vicious attack from several malignant microbes. Uh, it's been quite brutal at Casa de Omera. Before we get into the delicious and tasty meat of this latest episode, let me ask you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, subscribe to the monthly email newsletter on my website, brendanomera.com, and if you'd be so kind to share the podcast with friends or anybody you think who would enjoy it. I'd love to see the podcast grow, should it deserve to grow, of course, and that all starts with you. So, now that that's all done, let's cue up the theme. This is episode 20 of the Hashtag CNF Podcast, and I welcome back to the show Glenn Stout, a fan favorite among the sports writing literati. His latest book, The Selling of the Babe, published by Thomas Dunn Books, a division of St. Martin's Press, comes out Tuesday, March 8th, the year 2016. It's the first book to get super granular about the selling of Babe Ruth from the Red Sox to the Yankees, and we dive deep into what makes this book one of a kind. I'd like to think you won't find a longer interview dealing with this wonderful book anywhere else, but it's probably a jinx of sorts. The interview is a great companion to the book and offers some wonderful insights into the making of it, so I hope you enjoy it. So go buy the book, listen to this, then buy another copy of a book for a friend. And no, I don't get any kickbacks. So that's enough from me. Here's the incomparable Glenn Stout. Well, first, let me uh, just commend you on another job well done with this book. This was a lot of fun to read. Um, and also, it's just beautifully designed. That book cover is going to really kill, I think. Yeah, they did a uh, – when they sent me that book cover, I was like, whoa, uh, this looks really nice. They did a wonderful job at St. Martin's and Thomas Dunn Books on that. And, you know, the book isn't even out yet. But uh, to this point, it's the best-selling new baseball title of the spring, which um, – is very exciting uh, because you can't even get it yet. And some of the other books are already out. So that's really nice to see. And the reception so well critically has been very, very good. I can't wait for people to uh, actually get it in their hands and crack it open. Right. And so like, how do you dig up? A, like I was talking to uh, Mary Pillen about this a lot. Uh, like she had chosen the, you know, Monopoly to write about uh, Steve Prefontaine for a feature and uh, the Jumbotron, like we were calling it these generic tokens of these things that are so ubiquitous that we just take them for granted. And yet she was able to like really weave these really cool narratives around it. And I uh, like Babe Ruth is one of those big, bigger than life images. And I wonder, like, how did you dig up a new angle on a topic that feels on its surface so saturated? Yeah, well, that's sort of what I've always done throughout my career, no matter what I've written about. Um, I've tended from the very first story I did to find stories that people thought they knew. And I had the experience early on with a couple of stories where I discovered that, my gosh, everybody thinks they know what happened. And the result of that has been that nobody's ever really looked at it. Mm. So I found that you could look at what seem to be time-worn topics, and almost without fail, you find something new and you can tell a better story, a different story, a truer story. Um, 
you know, I've known for over 25 years that the so-called curse of the Bambino was a bunch of hooey, just factually incorrect uh, and all that. And I've written about that several times in Red Sox Century, the big book I did on the Red Sox, and in several lengthy articles that have appeared on ESPN and elsewhere. Um, but I've never looked at it. I'd never really thought about looking at it in book form, but I suddenly realized that, you know, no one had ever looked at this period in Ruth's career, the transition from when he starts as a pitcher and becomes a hitter. And it takes place in a very brief time period, three years, 1918, 1919, and 1920. And it's not just that he was sold during that period. But in the title of the book, I actually found a metaphor, the selling of the babe, which also refers to this selling of a new game. Uh, baseball went from the dead ball era to the lively ball era in this three-year time period. Ruth was at the center of that. So by looking at the deal closely and then looking at the impact that Ruth had on baseball, it kind of explodes open this small period in time period in baseball where the game changed utterly and forever. And no one had ever really looked at that before. There's never been a book about the transition between the dead ball era to the lively ball era. Um, and no one had looked at the deal, the sale of Ruth in its, in all its complications. It's a very complicated story. It's a fascinating story, but it's not a simple story. And everyone had always tried to present it simply. And then, of course, you have at the center of it the greatest character in the game, arguably the greatest player in the game, in Babe Ruth. Um, so it's a nice, um, it's a nice confluence of ideas and characters, and uh, uh, and history. So, how did you come to that central question of how George Ruth became the Babe? Well, you. You know, it, it all goes back to reporting. I mean, um, you know, I do an awful, awful lot of work when I'm doing these historical books in going through the day-to-day -day historical record as presented in the newspapers. And when you do that and you do it to the depth that I do, and you've been doing it as long as I have, because I've do, been doing these kinds of books on and off for almost 30 years, you know, you start to see more things than... Than, than somebody else would. You know, I don't just look at one paper. I look at multiple newspapers. And in that way, you start to see larger trends. And you do start to see, you know, Ruth being written about one way in 1918. And then by the time you get to 1920, he's written about in an entirely different way. In a very simple fashion, for instance, in 1918, he's often still referred to as George Ruth. Mm. And they do call him Babe. Babe is in quotations. By 1920, it's Babe Ruth. You know, he's this different character. Um, so, you know, that's how it all, all builds. It's just like through your reporting and paying attention and seeing how things change and evolve. And you did this a lot with A Young Woman in the Sea as well, where you, you know the ending, yet you're still able to create a lot of narrative drive. And I, I wonder, like, how, what is your approach to metering out narrative when people essentially know the ending? Well, you do that with detail and mm -hmm. you do that with color. Um, you know, yes, you know the ending. You know Ruth joins the Yankees. <laughs> uh, but you have to put him in places and you have to describe scenes. 
And you do that, again, by building of detail. You don't just look at one report of a home run. You look at five of them or mm. six of them. And you get one little piece of information from one report and one from another and a little bit more from a third. And it's almost like you're filling in the picture more and more with each report you look at until you have this full portrait. And once you have a full portrait, then you can put that in motion, so to speak. And that's the way you create a scene. And it gives the book forward momentum. And it keeps it from being just a dry as dust descriptive story into one that's animated and kinetic and in some ways, you know, cinematic. Uh, there's already been a little bit of film interest in this book, which I think would be fascinating to, to do a film of Babe Ruth during this time period. Um, and that's the challenge, because you're right. As a, as a reader, you need to be entertained. When you know the end of the story, you need a reason to keep going. Well, you try to do that by the way you put words together, the scenes you make, the pictures you draw. And I wonder, uh, how much fun is it for you to be like working with dead people? With these books, like. uh, it's a lot better working with dead people sometimes than it is with live people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's for sure. Um, you know, it, it is interesting. I'm, I'm not particularly comfortable as an author uh, or as a writer being too intrusive. I don't really enjoy the interview process, although I've done you know a ton of it. I did an oral history on on the. the, the the cleanup of the World Trade Center, which was, you know, hundreds, well, not hundreds, but about 100 hours of interviews. But um, I kind of prefer working with uh, with the kind of raw material of somebody who's gone and trying to bring that one-dimensional uh, uh, person back to life and animating them. That's, that's just a lot of fun for me because it's almost like you're you're creating something new. Well, it's like so. an archaeological dig. Like you're just you've got that brush out and you're just like you found the skeleton and you're just like dusting yeah, or off. Yeah, it's the almost stuff. or it's almost sculptural. Mm-hmm. You're you're <laughs> you're taking something that's kind of formless that doesn't have a personality and you're trying to endow it with personality. And I think with Ruth in this book, you know, I do give him personality. It's not quite the personality that everybody I think expects because the roof that uh, survived in history is almost cartoonish, is almost simple. And I think he was more complicated than that. You know, he wasn't a particularly nice guy, uh, particularly when he was younger, particularly before the, the, the press got to him and created this character. Uh, he was an interesting guy. He, he wasn't a mean guy. There was no guile to him, but he was totally self-absorbed, totally selfish completely oblivious to the needs of others. Um, yet a very interesting character because no one ever really seemed to blame him for it. It wasn't like he ever had an angle. He was just oblivious to everybody else. Um, and, and that's just kind of a, a very interesting character trait with him that may really have something to do with why he was ex- as successful as he was too, because he just didn't really care about what anybody else thought. So when he started to hit a different way, well, nobody was going to tell him dif- different. He didn't care anyway. Right. And uh, something I really uh, appreciated through this book and was I thought was a really good uh, strategy um, was like through the first quarter to the first third, like you evoke a lot of the European theater of World War One, And um, I wonder why that was important for you to um, to sort of call into 
or like provide that backdrop of World War One over the battles that were going on in baseball at the time? Well, it impacted everything in the game for one reason. I mean, the, the 1918 season was almost canceled and ended up being truncated because of the war, as did 1919. Um, you know, so it, so there was that, you know, aspect that actually affected the game. And it also affected the materials that the game used. You know, one of the reasons the lively ball came into existence was because during World War One, the highest quality wool and the highest quality horse hide was all taken by the military. That left baseball manufacturers to work with lower quality products. To yeah. kind of counteract that, they tried to wind the balls tighter because the the poorer quality wool was not as resilient and the ball was even deader than ever. And then after the war, when better quality wool came in, better quality horse hide, they never changed the winding of the baseball. So all of a sudden, they were winding the balls tighter but with higher quality wood, and voila, all of a sudden you had a lively ball. It was an accident, but it took place during this time period. It coincided with Root's rise, and it's something that he inadvertently was the first to take advantage of. So the, the war impacted everything, and then just in a general sense, too, is, you know, World War I um, uh, transformed American society dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, we became far more technological. There were airplanes. We were connected to Europe. It just changed society dramatically and set the stage for the Roaring Twenties. So you went from the Victorian era to the Roaring Twenties in a snap of a, a snap of a finger, just a few years. Yeah, uh, what a horrible, horrible, almost needless war that was. That was well, it was of course, and then and then on the heels of it, you had the Spanish American Flu, yeah. which wiped out millions of people. So it was tragedy upon tragedy, and uh, and then this new game that was completely different. That wasn't this boring station-to-station uh, -station scientific baseball, but was this dramatic uh, game where all of a sudden balls were flying out of the ballpark, at least when Babe Ruth was a bat. Yeah, and when you... Uh, there's a sentence you quote, quote in the book. I wonder uh, what, what you thought when you found this sentence. I'm just going to read it here. Um, it's... Uh, referring to Ruth, he's like he bends metal in his hands as if they were switches, and has a hand grip, a hard grip that crushes. I wonder what like if you let out a howl from the from the well, when you find when you, uh, when you find a, a, a period sports writer who does your work for you, you like that. <laughs> yeah. um, it's and it's 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 really fun because you know the sports writing back then was was far different, much more colorful, a lot more hyperbole sometimes stilted, sometimes really forced. But if you pick and choose correctly, uh, it can be really, really colorful. And uh, with Ruth, I mean, it was everybody had to weigh in. Everybody had to take their shot at him. You know, he was, you know, everybody had to write about him. Everybody had to describe him. So that's why you get all these new nicknames from the Bambino to the Sultan of Swat to my favorite one, the Infant Swatagy. Uh, you know, because, you know, you had 10 papers in Boston almost and 10 in New York. And, you know, every city had six or eight daily newspapers. And they're all writing about Babe Ruth when he comes into town. They're all trying to write something different. Uh, so you get this you get this this massive deluge of verbiage 
um, that just runs all over the place. So if you can be judicious, you can find some real gems in there. <laughs> and uh, have you ever, read, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but have you read the book Catcher? Uh, no, I don't believe I have. I, you, you would certainly dig it. Well, it's, it basically chronicles the rise of the catcher up until about the era just before Ruth. <laughs> and um, back, back then in that era, the catcher was sort of the idolized hero of the game like i think even stephen crane well, there's, that, there's that great uh, that great little poem we more we wore no mask uh, uh, we no, wore no glove upon our hands no mask upon our face exactly and uh, caught the ball with courage and with grace yeah yeah and and that was that was the hero of the game and then when ruth came along it was a different kind of hero worship that centered on an individual instead of a position and right uh, and, and also a team you know before ruth he was really the first player that people were fans of. They had been fans of teams before, their hometown team. And a few players had been somewhat transcendent. Christy Matheson, Walter Johnson, Ty Cobb to an extent. But Ruth was, it didn't matter what team he played for. People came out to see him. Mm. And it didn't matter if he played for the Red Sox or the Yankees or anybody else. They came to see him and the team was second. That really hadn't happened before. And that's something that we see even today. I mean, you know, people will criticize the NBA because it's a, it's a, it's a league that's just built on stars. The team doesn't matter as much as the star does. Mm-hmm. You're a LeBron fan. You're a Curry fan. Um, you know, who they play for is almost immaterial. And uh, through reading the book, I... I put blocks around words that I that I love and um I'm kind of a word nerd like that and um I I came across like somnambulism penurious trebuchet and I was just like well these are just such cool words and I wonder like are do you consider yourself kind of a word nerd and you just roll these things over on your tongue and in your head no but when you find a good one that fits that isn't too remote that sounds right you got to use it you know yeah um <laughs> You know, I don't try to make it challenging. I mean, you're not going to have to to uh, uh, have a dictionary or a thesaurus to read this. I think the key when you use kind of a word that's a little obscure or not used very often is all context. You have to make sure that um, even if the reader isn't that familiar with the word, they can instantly kind of infer what it means. Yeah. Uh, and then also you kind of think, well, people have to have some kind of vocabulary. You don't want to... Um, yeah. uh, simplify things too much. And, you know, and this is, you know, much of this book tells, like I said, it's a complicated story. It's not just a straight line. Um, the curse of the Bambino cartoon version of this, it's a much more complicated nuanced story. So there is a challenge when you're doing that, you want to be really precise. Um, and that's a really difficult thing to do because often you're, you know, the real world is not as straight line as the thumbnail description. So you're juggling a lot of different elements at the same time, and you have to try to be really, really, really precise. Yeah, with a lot of these words, like I always, you know, how some people get songs in their head. Like I get words in my head. So like for hours on end, I was just like going around work, just going like somnambulism, <laughs> somnambulism. <laughs> it just which, had this which great... of course means sleepwalking. Yeah, <laughs> which kind of fit what I was doing at the time yeah, in, some, in some ways. Um, there's, uh, I wonder, like in your baseball playing days, have uh, did you ever hit home runs or any, or were you more of a 
singles hitter? Um, you know, when I was when I was young, I was a power hitter, but I didn't often play, uh, you know, play at places that had fences. And I actually didn't hit my first actual over the fence home run. I'd hit ones where I had to run them out, but I didn't hit an actual over the fence home run until I was playing over 30 baseball. I was about 38. And um, I hit it over the fence where we were playing. And uh, I'll never forget, there was this kid that went to like all of our games who was, you know, kind of mentally challenged. He got the baseball for me. <laughs> and, and that was great. And, and the one thing I remember, I ended up hitting a few more. And the one thing I remember about when you actually hit a home run is how quickly the ball becomes small when it leaves your back. Mm-hmm. You, you, one, you know, of course, you don't really feel it because you hit it in the perfect spot yeah. but you and, and the next thing you see is the ball is really tiny and really far away and you know that you've gotten it uh and i think that's just that, i mean that's a an amazing feeling and it only happened to me you know maybe a half a dozen times or something but you know when you did it and the ball gets small so fast and, um, you know, there's nothing quite like it. You know, you, there's nothing like looking and seeing an outfielder turn his back. Yeah, because uh, I, I got the sense that you had a connection to it because I, I centered, I pulled out a passage here that, you know, Ruth fell in love with the home run. And then you go on to say, like, there is something to be said for that. Hitting a baseball square and then watching it go over the fence is almost transcendent. Once experienced, it's never forgotten. Oh yeah. I mean, when I did it, man, I watched, <laughs> I, was, I was like, I've been waiting a long time for this. And, and when I hit it, I was like, wow, that's actually going to do it. And I watched and you know, if I'd have, if I'd have been pitching against me that game, I probably would have stuck it in my ear the next time up because I, I was a happy guy. Um, you know, it, you know, the crazy thing though, when I did it too, is, is, uh, I hit a home run, and then when I came up the next time, the guy who was ahead of me in the order, he hit a home run. And I was at bat, and the first pitch from the pitcher after the other guy had hit a home run went behind my head, and I thought he was throwing at me. But the next thing I knew was I heard him screaming, and his upper arm had shattered when he thrown that pitch oh, man. broken to 16 pieces oh, and man. he collapsed uh, he collapsed on the mound and i mean i i heard the bones break uh and it was like whoa uh so i'll you know i'll never forget that oh jeez yeah. he yeah. broke his arm apparently pitching when he'd been much younger ah. and uh, um it just gave out blew up all at once well, one of the one of the things I think your book does best is um, it informs us that Babe Ruth wasn't the sure thing. And I was wondering, like, that must have been very fun for you to explore in this book, that he had that fluky season and then he was a very hit-and-miss type hitter. We yeah, were... I mean, the, the, I think most people think that, oh, Babe Ruth was this pitcher and he started hitting home runs and then all of a sudden he was this great home run hitter. And yeah. it was just like, just happened like that. Whereas what I do show over the book, it was, it, it took place, that transition took place over a couple of years and, and it was very sporadic. He would have some, some short time periods where he would hit home runs and show a lot of power. 
And then he'd have these long droughts where he wouldn't hit very well at all. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's like he, he figured it out, but he didn't figure out how to do it consistently for a while. And it took him some time to get there. It was a learning curve. Um, it, it wasn't this miracle. He was actually swinging the bat in a different way. He wasn't trying to push at the ball. He wasn't trying to take a level swing. He was cutting loose. He was using an uppercut. No one had really done that before. Um, so he had to kind of teach himself how to do it. Um, and that's what you see happening over this, you know, two year period from the spring spring training of 1918 through the end of the 1919 season where he's, he's then made that transition where he is primarily an outfielder and a, and a, and a hitter. And, but it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't, you know, in 1919, he got off to such a terrible start that um, you can actually blame him for the Red Sox not repeating as American League pennant winners in 1918 or, or in 1919, as they've done in 1918, because Ruth got off to such a terrible start. He put him in a huge hole and they never got out of it, despite the fact that he went on to hit a record number of home runs that year. It was too late. They didn't matter at that point. Yeah, yeah, because you said that all, m- many of his home runs were just kind of meaning- meaningless garbage time type home runs. It looks good on paper, but it didn't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, it's a cliche that they say, oh, if there had been an MVP award in 1919, Babe Ruth would have won it because he hit all these home runs. And it's, well, maybe, but it was like he wasn't particularly valuable to his team because by the time he got hot that year, they were already out of the pennant race. It didn't matter to the Red Sox fortunes that year. It, ma- it mattered in terms of the, their coffers in the, in the front office. I mean, they made some money off of him, but it wasn't, uh, um, you know, he didn't do what people expected them to do. He did not lead them, you know, despite having the greatest offensive season ever, he, he didn't lead them to the pennant that year. Huh. And um, I had a history teacher in high school. Yeah, he would always say that, uh, times change, technology changes, but people don't. And there's this great letter that you cite from Harry Frazee, the or Fra- Frazee, um, how do you pronounce Harry, his name? Uh, Frazee, yeah. So uh, the owner of the Red Sox at the time. And uh, there's this one paragraph towards the end of his letter that says, Harmony had departed when Ruth began to swell, and I doubt if we could have kept out for the second division this year with Ruth in the lineup. After all, the baseball fans pay to see games won and championships achieved. They soon tire of circus attractions, and this is just what Ruth has become. And didn't, didn't that ring like when LeBron left Cleveland, like all, you know, these whiny owners sometimes? I just I love that you pulled that sure, out I mean, and how timely I mean, that is. I mean, for Z, in a sense, for Z was right, but he was also, he also didn't recognize what was taking place, was that uh, the individual attraction was becoming more important than the team, uh, you know, and, and, but like, but like no one really got that. The only person that might've got it a little bit was um, Jacob Rupert, the owner of the Yankees. Uh, you know, he knew he needed to compete in New York. How do you compete in New York? Well, it, a, the Yankees had to win because they were going up against the Giants. But the second thing was, is they needed an attraction. They needed a star. They needed a draw because the biggest draw in New York at that time in baseball was the Giants manager, John McGraw. You know, Christy Matheson's career was over. Uh, John McGraw was the dominating figure in New York baseball at the time, but he was a manager. 
And Ruth, New York always responded to Ruth. He always played well there when he was with the Red Sox. And and Rupert saw this and, uh, you know, it came along at the perfect time because guess what? He was a he was a beer brewer. Prohibition was coming in. He had to find a way to make money off of baseball. And the Yankees had been a losing proposition to that point. So he really had no choice but to try to make baseball his primary business. And how do you do that? Well, you need an attraction. You need to win and you need to have a star. And in Ruth, he got both. And uh, if the A thread throughout a lot of the book is this ascension of Ruth, the B thread in a lot of ways was this war of the insurrectors on Ban Johnson and everything. And I was wondering, like, how did uh, Ruth in a lot of ways was like the Franz Ferdinand assassination that uh, ignited a lot of this stuff in a lot of ways. Yeah, Ruth ends up kind of being a pawn in that because, you know, when Harry Frizee bought the Red Sox, he was... uh, uh, it was controversial. He wasn't welcomed into the league by Ban Johnson, who had founded the American League and still ran it like a puppet master and, in fact, owned portions of various teams and sometimes arranged trades behind people's backs and things like this. And Brzee had not been uh, invited to join, but uh, but bought in anyway. Uh, Johnson and many other people in baseball at the time thought he was Jewish because of his theater connection, so that didn't help him. And then, you know, in the 1918 season, um, because of the war, Van Johnson overreacted. He almost caused the entire season to be canceled. And as it was, it was shortened, uh, but only because of, uh, of uh, the intercession of Harry Frazee, who, who, who got the War Department to allow baseball to continue its season because they were going to shut it down. Uh, and, and that created animosity between the two. Frizee thought that Johnson was incompetent. Johnson thought that Frizee was impertinent, uh, you know, not deferential. Uh, and from that time forward, Johnson's goal was to get Frizee out of baseball. Frizee's goal was to hang on to the Red Sox. And it sets up this dynamic that the sale of Ruth sort of solves. Um, that ends up working for a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. It allowed Harry Frizee to keep his ball club. It allowed him to, to, to take control of Fenway Park, which actually allowed him to keep his ball club, allowed him to pay off some debts, allowed him to, to, to strengthen this alliance with Jacob Rupert, who was supporting him in his battle against Johnson, and it weakened Johnson at the same time. So it was kind of a win-win for everybody. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't uh, in any way, shape, or form, uh, so he could uh, create the musical No, No, Nanette. Yeah. Well, that mu- it feels, it doesn't read complicated, but it feels like it must have been challenging for you to maneuver those parts, especially for that part of the book that deals with the actual sale of, ba- of, of Babe Ruth. Like, well, what what is, was that like? It is because you're, I'm trying to make something intelligible. And I'm trying to make something intelligible that is actually told nowhere else in its entirety. Because if you're reading period reports of these political battles in the league um, and what Johnson's saying and what Frazee is, is saying, every source you're looking at takes a side. You know, the sporting news, for instance, is the, is the mouthpiece for the baseball establishment. And various newspapers line up either behind Johnson or behind Frizee or behind Rupert in various ways, shapes, or forms. So you're, so you're wading through these 
accounts, each of which is twisted and compromised in its own way. And you're trying to find what the truth is in there and then lay that out as simply as, as you can while stripping away all the bias that exists in, in everything else. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. That's the most difficult part of a book like this is, and you also know you're running counter to something that everybody thinks they know. And you also have to, so you have to kind of parry uh, that misinformation at the same time. Um, so you just try to do it as, as clearly and precisely as you can. And you, you hope you make it interesting enough that the readers follow along with you because, uh, but I always tell everybody, you know, when you're working on anything like this, the truth always tells the best story, mm. you know, um, and it's just up to you to find out what the truth is and then present it uh, in an intelligible way. And, and that is the best story. And Ring Lardner, he wrote a, he wrote a very late, as, as you say, like the acerbic, acerbic in a cynical Ring Lardner. He wrote, um, you know, this is towards the end. He said, like, the, the home run the public wants to see, then give them home runs. And because he was, he was referring to the, to the, the live ball era and they were kind of pandering to the fans in that sense. And that really just resonates into the future with like the steroid era and everything. Like the home run had become ubiquitous, but now we need to see it go very, very far. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, nothing new under the sun in a lot of ways. Yeah. Same. Uh, uh, you know, you see your defenders of baseball tradition um, railing against the changes in the game. You see other people saying, Oh, you know, forget that, you know, this new game is great. You know, what are you talking about? And it's interesting because guys like Lardner were like, ah, oh, this isn't baseball, you know, it's, it's like, um, you know, basketball before the three pointer, you know, the game I grew up with, it's mm -hmm. like basketball today is a radically, totally different game. Um, so it is with baseball before the home run. It was a totally different game. And one that wasn't like, wasn't that successful. It had kind of, you know, attendance had kind of flattened. Baseball wasn't growing anymore. Hey, quiet. It's my dog. <laughs> but yeah. baseball wasn't growing anymore, and uh, the dead ball game was kind of dreary and slow, and uh, people weren't responding to it. But after World War II, younger generation, you know, they uh, uh, the home run was magic. Huh. And I wonder why you still, why you think uh, Babe Ruth as a figure still indoors, you know, a hundred years after, you know, almost a hundred years after the sale. Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I mean, and one of them is that Ruth was kind of the every man for his era. I mean, he was this, you know, urban, urban urchin, street urchin who brought himself up from nothing, who, you know, came from nothing and became the most famous person in America. That's an inherently American story. That, that fits right into the American mythos. It's a self-made man. You make yourself. And, and it's the immigrant story, too. I mean, he wasn't an immigrant, but his parents were, were German. And, you know, they, they kind of became, you know, he becomes more than, you know, he's German, right? Right after World War I. <laughs> and he's like the most popular guy in the country. That's amazing. He was able to overcome his ethnicity. Um, and I think that has a huge, I think another part that, that, that has it is that he did have this like over the top, enormous personality, this big moon face 
that was cartoonish, that wasn't threatening, that he seemed like he was having a lot of fun. And he came to in an era where people started to have fun. And I mean, you can't deny the fact that, my God, the guy just changed. You know, he was the greatest player ever. Um, you know, it's, it, you can't, I don't think you can even argue with it because he had success both on, as a pitcher and a hitter. No one else did that. No one else even remotely approached his success at those two positions. Um, you know, that's the, the kind of, I mean, he's kind of the first man of baseball. He is really the first modern player because by ushering in the lively ball era, that's the model the game is still played in today nearly 100 years later. He seemed so aware that he was changing the game too, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did. I mean, he was, you know, he was into it. <laughs> you know, big time. He was like, you know, he, he knew, boy, hitting home runs, I'm getting a lot of attention, I'm getting a lot of money. Chicks um, dig the long ball. Chicks dig the long ball, they dig me. I'm, you know, I'm, everybody wants to have a drink with me, everybody wants to take me out to dinner. And this is great. I grew up with nothing. You know, I grew up with nothing. I was in an orphanage for most of my childhood. And now look at this. Everything is available to me. And, uh, and, and, and he took advantage of it. This was great. This is the American dream, right? Uh, I mean, no one, I think, kind of was better at embracing the American dream than Babe Ruth. You know, he didn't say no to anything. Right, right. He said yes to it all. Uh, uh, and there's something, you know, and there's something, you know, oddly innocent about that, too. He just, uh, you know, Babe Ruth never said no, but he, he sure loved to say yes. <laughs> all right, I've just got a few kind of like rapid-fire questions, but that don't necessarily require rapid answers, if that makes okay. any sense. And then I'll be respectful of your time so you can war uh, kind of uh, relax your vocal cords for your radio interview in a little bit. Yep. Um, so if you had to send one social network to the gallows, which would it be? <laughs> oh, that might be Twitter. <laughs> and who are your sort of literary spirit animals or books that turn that you turn to for assurance, comfort, just entertainment, things you love? Wow. Uh, it's a very eclectic list. It would be, um, you know, one of my favorite books ever is uh, Jack Kerouac uh, on the road. Mm hmm. Uh, I also uh, am always drawn to this collection of, uh, of the French writer Antonin Artaud, uh, who um, wrote all sorts of just incredibly wild and crazy stuff. But there's an essay that he wrote that I return to again and again. That's called No More Masterpieces, in which he uh, describes how by trying to create something that's perfect, you often loosely speaking, you, you kind of miss out on a lot of other creativity. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of poetry I return to, uh, work by James Wright, um, uh, Rilke, uh, people like that. Um, you know, those are the things I return to time and time and time again. I mean, if I have to pick 10 books to, to go away with, I'm probably going to pick eight that I already have. And I've already read 10 times. Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're just, uh, you know, there's a great book about writing called The Poetics of the New American Poetry that even if you're doing nonfiction is just full of, of wonderful ideas and is very inspirational. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I'm drawn to. I, I, I 
do read other things, nonfiction and stuff like that. But, you know, but but I'm more drawn, quite frankly, to, to poetry and literary essays. And, you know, I mean, I, I was brought into this writing world through encountering uh, the work of the poet Langston Hughes. And uh, everything I've read since then is kind of on this chain that started with Langston Hughes and he led me to other writers and they led me to other writers. And that led me on this kind of um, journey through 20th century American literature from uh, the 1930s to, to, you know, through the, through the present. Um, that's, and then, you know, then I start going backwards and read other people in translation and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I like Sappho. <laughs> I mean, hmm. it's, it's, I'm all over the place with what I read. It's, I don't read, um, you know, just sports books, you know. I tell everybody, God, the last thing you should do is just read sports. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, read everything else. <laughs> read everything else. So where were you at age 30 in life? Where was I at age 30 in life? Uh, at age 30, which would have been, what, 88, um, I was working at the Boston Public Library. I had just uh, gotten my library degree. Uh, I was living on my own in Boston, uh, in Roxbury. Uh, having a great time going to see rock and roll a couple nights a week, hanging out in bars way too much, talking <laughs> way too much, smoking way too many cigarettes, uh, having a hell of a time. Uh, you know, uh, I had a group that got together at my house every week where we would, uh, every week or two where we would, uh, uh, read something we'd written for each other. Cause we all wanted to be writers. And I had that thing going. I was just starting to, to freelance. I was placing stories in Boston magazine and a few other, um, a few other places around uh, magazines at that time, but I wasn't writing any books. I was just coming to the conclusion that, Hey, maybe I could make a living doing this. Uh, not that I didn't like what I was doing working at the library where I did hardly anything. Um, you would think I did, but I thought, well, this is something I might be able to really do. Um, and, and move forward with. What advice would you give that 30-year-old Glenn Stout? Shouldn't have smoked so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I don't smoke anymore. My guy back then, I was a chimney. I mean, I wish I'd have... I look back now, and I think, you know, I kind of wasted a lot of time, in a sense, sitting in bars, drinking and smoking. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that's also kind of really valuable. You need that interaction with other people. Uh, you have to be out in the world and engaged in the world and doing things like that. I mean, there's a great line from A.J. Liebling, the uh, uh, New Yorker writer who is best known for most people for the writing he did about boxing. And at one point, he's complaining about this new generation of sports writers that were coming into New York in the 1950s. And he said, you know, now it's all nine to five and home to wife and baby when you should be sitting in some saloon soaking up information. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of spent the, the better part of a decade soaking up a lot of information, uh, having a great time. Uh, you know, I find out later that, you know, the bar across the street is like where David Foster Wallace was probably hanging out at the same time. And, you know, I <laughs> never quite encountered him or anything like that, but, uh, um, but I had a lot of experiences. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Cause, uh, you know, life can't, or art can't imitate life unless you have a life. 
Yeah, I mean, Boston at that time was was not the Boston it is now, which is so expensive you can't live there. And then it was cheap and dirty and grungy. And, you know, I lived in a, in a crummy neighborhood where all the yuppies would run to their cars because they were afraid of the people that lived in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, I was just kind of oblivious to the whole thing. I just wander around everywhere all the time, no matter what. Um, and I worked at the Boston Public Library, which was this, this kind of like United Nations at the time of people from all over the place. And uh, a lot of people who were interested in books like me, who are still my friends today. And, um, you know, rock and roll scene was great in Boston and uh, it was cheap and uh, you could still live cheap. You know, that was a time when there were still interesting cities you could live cheap in. Uh, which there are now. Right, right. <laughs> Not very many. <laughs> and what did you learn over the years uh, having known David Halberstam? Well, I mean, David Halberstam was, uh, I met him at the library when he was researching Summer 49. And I, I kind of developed this reputation at that point that, you know, I, I knew how to find stuff, uh, particularly sports stuff. So when he came there, somebody put him in touch with me. And um, he was so incredibly generous because. At that point, I'd intersected with a number of other sports writers and writers, and they tended to treat you like hired help. Mm-hmm. They wanted you to find stuff for them and spoon feed it to them and say, thank you very much. And David Halberstam, who was much bigger than any of them in stature, uh, treated me as a peer and an equal right from the start. Uh, and that was, that was who he was. Uh, he took me seriously. Uh, that was incredible. And that was about that time period, about 1988, sometime mm-hmm. in that time period. Probably a little bit before then, because I think Summer 49 came out in 89. So it might have been a year or two before then. But that was hugely important. I mean, here's this guy uh, who's, you know, done everything there is to do in journalism just about. And he's treating you like you're a peer. And he would, like, find something. And he would, would get excited and would show it to me. And, you know, several years later, when the Best American came up, um, you know, I said, I think, you know, we should have David Halberstam be the first guest editor. And they kind of rolled their eyes. I said, well, I know him. And uh, then they really rolled their eyes. Um, <laughs> you know, because I'm walking around with hair down to my ass, looking like, uh, you know, uh, a reject from a biker gang. And um, uh, and they called him up and he remembered me and he said, oh, Glenn Stout's doing it. I'm in. Just like that. Um, and, um, he, you know, I would, I wouldn't ever say I was close to him after that. I, I never bothered him unless I really needed something or had an occasion to, but without fail, he was, uh, always kind and generous over the, the, any dealings I had with him from that time forward. Hmm. And who are some of the writers that you're reading these days that, or maybe even some from a couple of years, a couple of years past that aren't getting the ne- necessarily the attention that you think they deserve? Boy, you know, I've been um, so locked in on other projects. I haven't done a lot of outside reading except with the writers I've been working with myself. And and I think some of them are just terrific. I mean, Michael Graff, Jeremy Collins, Eva Holland, who I know you've spoken to a lot of these people, um, you know, and so many of the other writers that I've worked with, you know, in this last project, which no longer exists. Uh, they're people that other people are going to be reading for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see what they're going to do next. Uh, I enjoy looking up their bylines 
um, uh, for for what's coming next for all of them. Uh, that's what I'm excited about. Great, and and lastly, uh, you know where where can people find you online? Glenstout.net. That's where all my stuff is. You, know, you want to find out what I've done or what I'm doing? That's where it all is. Um, you know, um, I'm on Facebook with uh, I've got a group for uh, um, the best American sports writing. I'll probably try to set up a, a, babe, a selling of the Babe page this weekend. Um, try to get that going. But Glenstout.net. You know, I can anybody can get in touch with me. I, my email address is out there, and uh, if anybody really wants to talk to me that's that's the best way to do it uh i might not answer all your questions but i'll I'll probably talk to you (laughs) well fantastic well glenn it's always a pleasure speaking with you and i thank you for carving out some time in your morning here to talk about the babe and and some other things here okay thanks thanks a lot brandon i always enjoy these all right you got i'll talk later okay man that's a wrap folks this episode was conducted by edited by and produced by me special thanks to glenn stout for his time and to you the listener for being a part of the cnf podcast tribe thank you